Do you just love this podcast so much and wish you could find a way to monetarily support us? Well, guess what? Much like NPR, we thrive on support from viewers like you. So if you love this podcast and you want to become a contributor, all you have to do is go to anchor.fm. That's A-N-C-H-O-R dot F-M. Click the support button and choose the amount that you want to contribute each month to our podcast. This helps keep our podcast going and it keeps the phenomenal content that you have come to know and love flowing. So yeah, what are you waiting for? Sign up today. As always, thank you so much for being a listener. We appreciate you. We see you. And we hope you enjoy the show. Spoiler alert. If you do not want this film ruined, do not proceed. There's spoilers galore. You have been warned. Welcome to Talk Classic to Me, the classic film podcast and movie club where I, Sarah Greenfield, your host and classic film enthusiast, bring in my entertaining friends to talk about classic movies or any other old-fashioned form of media that strikes my fancy. On today's show, we're talking about the film Gentlemen Prefer Blondes from 1953 with my wonderful guest, Christina Rice. Welcome to Talk Classic to Me. I am your host, Sarah Greenfield. And today on the show, we are watching Gentlemen Prefer Blondes from 1953. And I have a wonderful guest, the fantastic Christina Rice. Christina, welcome to the show. Hi, thank you so much for having me here. This is exciting. So I have Christina on the show today. First of all, let me tell you why I chose this film. This film will be released right around Valentine's Day. And while it's not like our official Valentine's Day selection on the podcast, I kind of just decided that all of February, I only wanted to watch rom-coms and really happy romantic films. So I chose this film to come out in February. Um, But we have Christina with us today because she literally wrote the book on Jane Russell. Her book is called Mean, Moody, Magnificent, Jane Russell and the Marketing of a Hollywood Legend. Christina, we are so excited to have you here to have this conversation. Um, so yeah, what were your first, uh, reactions after this particular screening of Gentlemen Prefer Blondes? Um, that it was just as delightful as like the first 855 screenings of this over the course of my life since I was like probably 14 years old. This movie is such a delight. It does not get old. Um, I enjoy it so much every time I watch it. Uh, so viewers at home, I will give you a plot synopsis so you can join in on the fun. That is Gentlemen Prefer Blondes. Uh, So this movie is about two women, Dorothy Shaw, who is played by Jane Russell, and Lorelai Lee, as played by Marilyn Monroe, just like coming out into her own. This is 1953. This is like Marilyn Monroe's emergence year of her persona because she has this and How to Marry a Millionaire. So the general public is finally like awakening to Marilyn Monroe. Um, And they are two women who are singer dancers And Lorelai is very into diamonds. There's no other way to put it. She loves jewels. She loves diamonds. She wants to marry a rich man. And Dorothy is the opposite of that. She's all about just like love and passion and doesn't really care about money. She just wants like a really great romance that sticks this time around. So they go on a cruise because Lorelai is trying to entrap this guy, Gus, who she loves, but who's also very, very rich. And she has this plan to do it, which is basically to take a boat to Paris. And Gus's father, 
who does not like the idea of Lorelai, has hired a private detective to go on the ship and report back to him in case Lorelai does anything fishy. So, of course, like, fishy things happen. She's Marilyn Monroe. She's gorgeous. Men are, like, throwing themselves at her. She can't help it. Plus, also, she meets a man on the ship that has a diamond tiara and diamond mines. And even though he's, like, old and gross and played by Charles Coburn, she's like, no, I'm really going to try to get something out of this this guy anyway I can. So Jane Russell's character falls in love with the detective. She finds out he's a detective and that he's trying to get information against her best friend. She's not cool with it. She breaks up with him. Wow, this is very convoluted to describe, I'm realizing. It's really fun while you're watching it. There's musical numbers thrown in, but describing it, you're like, wait, wow, how is this happening? They get to Paris. Gus and Lorelai break up because he thinks she has cheated on him. Uh, with the man who had all the money and the diamond tiara stuff. He had given Lorelai a diamond tiara, but he had also stolen it. Wow, this is so confusing, but don't worry, it's a musical comedy. Um, in the end, everything's okay. Jane Russell ends up with her guy. The tiara gets back to its rightful owner who actually had it the whole time and was trying to steal it, but Lorelai's not in trouble for stealing it, so that's good. And Lorelai and Gus get married with her father's permission. It's a double wedding. The wedding dresses are honestly terrible. And... Um, it's more about, I think, the friendship between Lorelai and Dorothy than anything else. And I think that's probably why we all love it so much. What do you think about that? I do think it is the greatest buddy movie ever made. And I will I will stand Ooh. by that. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yes. I love that. Well, because what I was noticing this time was it was so much about their female friendship at its core, right? There are so many visual cues that tell us this, like, um, they do this thing where they walk in sync a lot and it's the coolest thing to watch. It's like choreography, but they are like lockstep together, walking through life. They have each other's back. They support each other. When the detective tries to say something mean about Lorelai, Jane Russell's not having it. She's like, no, no, no. Nobody talks about Lorelai but me. You don't get to talk bad about her. And they even when they get married, it's not even about their marriages. The camera pans in for a close up on the two of them and they look at each other. Like the movie is completely about their friendship. Um, so I was really loving that this time around. The guys don't matter. When you watch a film with Marilyn Monroe, it's really hard to take your eyes off of her. You know, she's just so magnetic. But it, after you've seen this movie so many times, if you actually watch Jane in this movie and not Marilyn, like her reactions to Marilyn are priceless because she's just kind of constantly amused by her. And I think I think it's it's Dorothy being amused by Lorelai, but I also think it's kind of Jane being amused by Marilyn's performance because um, Marilyn was such a brilliant comedian and she just nails it. And it's just Jane, it's just Jane going, yes, this movie is going to be amazing. That's how I feel kind of her response to Marilyn comes across. Well, and I think that they both get a chance to shine and they both have their own styles because like, you're so right. Your eyes are drawn to Marilyn, but Jane still manages to stand out for herself too. She is so strong and brassy in this role. Um, so she, I feel like she also manages to shine and they also, it's like their character choices show so much of who they are too. Cause when they're doing the same choreography, you get the sense that Jane Russell is more like 
brassy and broad about it. And Marilyn is very detailed and specific. So I don't know, you get to see the two of them like making choices as actors and having that fit into their characters. They're both shining. They both have their moments. It ultimately was very deliberate so that you know, the choreography is very simple because neither one of them were actually dancers. So <laughs> if, you, if you really pay attention, they're just kind of like walking their way through their dance numbers and, you know, moving their arms around a lot. But it does look like dancing. Um, but originally, you know, you know, the, the numbers they do together, like the opening number of the film, um, Two Little Girls from Little Rock, it was identical choreography, but kind of adds Jack Cole, who was the choreographer, you know, and he was he directed those musical numbers. Howard Hawks is the director of the film, but Jack Cole directed the musical numbers. They He did end up adapting. So, you know, Marilyn's moves, you know, are, are definitely much more sensual because that was her. And Jane's are much more like, all righty, hey, boy. You know, because yeah. that was her, but but it works. So, yeah, so they it is the same choreography, but they absolutely move with their own style. Um, yeah, and you just neither one is trying to like steal the spotlight. So they're they're kind of you know giving giving as much as they're getting, and and it just comes across so well. They really utilize the charisma of each of the actresses, and they really play to their strengths. And you're right, Jack Cole. Thank you for shouting out Jack Cole, the choreographer who did direct all of those sequences. Even though Howard Hawks is the director of this picture, he did not direct those insane choreography sequences. One with Diamonds Are a Girl's Best Friend, and two, um, oh, what's that number called? Ain't there anyone here for love? Ain't there anyone here for love? The best like homoerotic number in the whole thing. Um, yeah. Ooh, wait, that's something I noticed this time that I want to talk to you about too. Um. What I was thinking about a lot this time was this film ended up being like gender stereotypes that were reimagined. Um, so in this film, like, yes, the women are being objectified by the, for their beauty, but they're like using that to power, like they're ambitious women that get a reward in the end. But they're, the men in this movie are also objectified. So that number that we just talked about, ain't there anyone here for love? Jane Russell is lamenting that there's all these gorgeous Olympians on the boat and none of them want to be with her because they're so serious about their athletics. They're in nude, tiny, tiny nude bathing suits. They are being physically objectified both by the viewer and the women on the ship. I was like, this is so cool. The women are in on the joke. And there's like the whole, she, she's like walking through a line of them and they just have their butts in the air <laughs> towards yes. her, like undulating up and down. It's a great number that got... Uh, excised out of British prints when it played in theaters and on television screenings here in the U.S. later on. That number was removed. Was it because it was racy? Like, yeah. was it because, like, mm -hmm. men are half naked and wrestling with each other? Is that why? Yeah, I think it was too homoerotic. Yeah. And, like, and totally ignoring Jane. <laughs> you know, and totally Jane ignoring just, Jane. It was just gorgeous. <laughs> she was like, why do none of these half naked men want to be with me? And I'm like, because they want to yeah. be with each other. And that's beautiful, too. Like, come on. Yeah. She just walks around that number. She's just walking the whole time. But it's it's high energy. And they're dancing all around her. And then at the very end, she falls into the pool and she's not mad about it. <laughs> they just pull her out, lift yeah. her up, give her a drink. Great yeah. choreography. And that wasn't scripted. That wasn't? Yeah, she gets knocked into the pool. Oh, that if you watch it, oh, watch it. She like bends down and they were all, they're all supposed to jump into the pool over her. And one of them just clocks her and knocks her in. And, and then they pull her out and yeah. And according to Jane, the guy got fired and it happened on a Friday, a Friday or a Saturday. And then they had the day off and they went back on Monday to reshoot it. And she's like, why are you going to reshoot it? You're going to use the one where I get knocked in the pool, but they had to like reshoot it with the, 
you know, scripted ending. And, and of course they use the shot where she gets knocked in the pool. So that, that was not scripted. That, that was a happy accident. I thought that was 100% choreographed. And I was like, how brilliant. Wow. What a great happy accident. Yeah. Watch her. Cause she, she just gets like hit, <laughs> hit and knocked into it. Yeah. Were there any other like happy accidents that you know about in the making of this film? And also we can talk Jane Russell too. I mean, you literally, again, wrote the book on her. You know so much about her. One, were there happy accidents that we should know about from the film? And two, like, what's the context of her career during the making of this film? Like, what's Jane Russell going through? Well, I'm going to give Jane's backstory because it really, with Gentlemen for Blondes, she kind of comes full circle with her career. You know, and there are a lot of parallels with her in Maryland. So Jane was raised here in, in Los Angeles in the San Fernando Valley. She was never particularly ambitious. So her, her mom had been an actress like in vaudeville and some legitimate theater. And so I think her mom always kind of projected that desire onto her and said she she named her Jane Russell because she knew that would look great in lights. Um, so when she graduates from high school, she she goes, you know, she goes and takes some acting classes. But again, she isn't too committed. And a friend of hers introduces her to Tom Kelly, who was a photographer, who I think if people know him now, it's because he shot the nude photos of Marilyn Monroe that were on the, the Golden Dreams calendar. And later on, Hugh Hefner purchased them for the first issue of Playboy. So um, Jane actually was a model for Tom Kelly. And, but she modeled clothes. So she modeled very, very modest um, clothing. And so he taught her how to pose. So he taught her kind of the ins and outs and you know how, how to look good on camera. And um, her photo is hanging up at his studio and an agent named Levis Green walked in one day because uh, Howard Hawks and Howard Hughes were going to be making a movie, The Outlaw. And so Howard Hughes was going to be producing it. Howard Hawks was directing it. And they wanted to get unknowns to play the role of Billy the Kid, who was going to be the star, and his love interest, which was a character named Rios. They needed kind of a dark, brooding beauty. And so the agent walked in and he, he would go into Tom Kelly's studio to kind of scope out the girls and saw this picture of Jane, which was a kind of a close up of her face. Like Jane, you know, ultimately was known for her physique, but it was a close up of her face. And he grabbed it off the wall and um, Howard Hawks saw it and said, yeah, let's get her in for a screen test. And she was one of, of many who tested. And, um, you know, she was so photogenic that she, she got the role. And so at the age of 19, she's cast in this, you know, this Howard Hughes film that had tons of publicity and she was going to work with Howard Hawks and she was very excited. And um, not too long into filming, uh, Hawks and Hughes were not seeing eye to eye. Hawks walks off the picture or gets fired, depending on who you ask. Hughes takes over as the director. The thing takes like much longer to film than it would have otherwise. Um, takes years and years and years and years and years to be released because Howard Hughes was so eccentric. But in the meantime, he decides that Jane is going to be kind of the cornerstone of the publicity for this film, particularly her breasts. And so there's just, she is photographed nonstop for like a year. And so her photo is everywhere. It's on <clears throat> magazines and in newspapers all around the world. But no movies come out. And so she her nickname is the motionless picture actress because oh. her photos are everywhere, but there's no movies. Yeah. Eventually, Hughes does put her in films and um, he purchases RKO and just really um, starts putting her in movies then. And she becomes a household name. And it's largely because of these photographs and the, the publicity that she got and kind of the controversy around how provocative the photos of her were. Um, but in 1953, 
you know, Howard Hawks is asked to direct this film and, you know, they're bringing Marilyn on board. They're not sure, you know, she's under contract to Fox. So Marilyn just gets assigned to the film. They're not sure she can pull it off. And Hawks says, yeah, she can, but I think she needs somebody to kind of prop her up um, behind the scenes. And he goes, you know what, Jane. And he called her up and, you know, said, Jane, I have a movie for you. And Jane said, sure. Without seeing the script, he said, well, you know, the, this Lorelai Lee character might kind of outshine you. And she said, I don't care. You know, she just wanted to do a movie with Hawks. And this was going to be a big budget Technicolor musical. So it was kind of a step above some of the other things that Howard Hughes had been you know, putting her into. So that's what, you know, she, she comes to do Gentlemen Prefer Blondes. And she's just ecstatic and just embraces it. And, you know, Fox has to pay Howard Hughes. I think he wanted like $175,000 to loan Jane. Um, so he does. Oh, yeah. So Jane, Jane was a big, you know, she was a big star. So Marilyn was definitely on the rise. Jane had been around for a decade by this time. And Howard Hughes and Jane, I think, had enough pull at that time that Jane's regular cinematographer, Harry J. Wilde, is brought over to Gentlemen Prefer Blondes. And then Jane brings over her whole hair and makeup crew and they just roll up the red carpet for her. So um, it was it was a it was a fabulous experience for Jane. Absolutely wonderful. And and she always she always said it was the closest you would ever see to Jane Russell on the screen. So that character of Dorothy Shaw, like really does embody the, the personality and spirit of Jane Russell. Um, and it was uh, it was her favorite film. I think it was her favorite character. She made one other film called Fuzzy Pink Nightgown, which she loved. Um, so this and Gentlemen Prefer Blondes were her favorite films. Oh, that's so good to know. I love hearing that this was the closest to who she felt that she was because this character is so lovable and so fun and so smart. I love that. And so brassy. Brassy is Jane. Like Jane Russell was a brassy broad. Like she really was. Um, so I had heard a story that you had mentioned she was known for her physical assets, which I feel like famously she's known for her breasts, like for her, her bust, her cleavage, all of these words. Um, I think Marilyn Monroe even had a famous quote when they did their their handprints at Grauman's. I think Marilyn said, well, shouldn't I just sit in it and you could just lean forward? Like the joke was that Marilyn was famous for her wiggle walk and Jane was famous for her breast. So the story that I had heard was that during that first film, she didn't understand that she was being filmed in such a way where her, her cleavage was showing. When she would lean forward, you could see her cleavage. And she didn't understand that she was being filmed as a sex symbol. Um, and she was maybe a little bit embarrassed about that. Have you have you heard the story or do you can you speak to that at all? Yeah. So it's first off, um, the way that Jane was described over the years, like I, I was tempted to include a, um, like a glossary of were of like terms used to describe her bust. Um, I ended up not, but I started like kind of keeping a list because the newspapers got really creative. Um, so it was actually, it was more so the, the photographers. So the, when the outlaw first started filming, it was on location in Arizona when Howard Hawks was still there. And so Russell Birdwell, who was a publicist and he was the guy behind like the search for Scarlet for Gone with the Wind, like that campaign, Howard Hughes brought him on to do the publicity for the outlaw. And, you know, he did a brilliant job because we're what, like 80 years later and we still talk about the outlaw and it's a terrible film. It is not a good <laughs> film. <laughs> Jane is not good in it. It is a pretty boring film. It's really weird. Um, but we still talk about the advertising campaign. And so when filming started in Arizona, 
um, Russell Birdwell like dispatched a bunch of photographers and it was kind of like get shots of her, of her chest. Uh. And so that's when, when she was there, they, the photographers would do things like, Hey, Janie, like, you know, why don't you pick up those buckets and they would go up on rocks to try to shoot down. And so this is like her big break. She's 19 years old. She just wants to please everyone. So she kind of went along with it. And then she starts to get like, a, you know, she starts to get wise a little bit to it. And so one night a photographer comes to her room. They're, they're kind of in um, like intense, but kind of like semi-permanent, like platform tents. And he comes into her room and says, hey, can I take some photos of you? And, you know, had her in like a, like a negligee and asked her to start, you know, he was like photographing her, like brushing her teeth and like getting ready for bed and then asked her to jump on the bed. Uh. And so she did it because she thought she was supposed to. And then after he left, she felt really bad about it. She's like, she felt really gross. And so yeah. she went to Howard Hawks in tears about what had happened. And, you know, Howard Hawks was a no-nonsense guy. And he looked at her and said, you're a big girl. If you don't want to do it, don't do it. They can't make you. And so that was that was the philosophy that Jane adhered to most of her career. I mean, you know, she, she always knew it was a trade-off that, you know, the reason why she was in the position she was in the, she was, was because of her looks and because of her physique. So she, she knew that, but if there were instances where she felt like she was getting pushed too far, if Howard Hughes was pushing her too far, then she would put her foot down. So there were times in her career that she would. Um, so yeah. And, and during the filming and they, they didn't purposely try to film her with the camera going down her shirts, you know, Howard Hawks is the primary director, but they would have all these other directors come in that that film was just a mess. And, you know, and the other directors or the cinematographers would be like, oh, we, we no, Jane, Jane we, we need to film that again because of the angle. We can't do it. But then Howard Hughes sees the photos of her bending over, you know, over Billy the Kid in bed. And that's the one he uses. Ugh. So, um, so, yeah, so they didn't try to really take advantage of her on the filming. But those photographers, you know, and those photos that were taken of her were, you know, those were put on magazines all, all around. And so once she saw them, she was horrified, you know, and her mother was horrified. Um, but, yeah, so she she was always walking that fine line between, you know, eh, what do I really need to do, you know, to have this career? And, and when can I when can I kind of draw the line? It sounds like her and Howard Hughes had maybe not the greatest relationship. Like how much control did he have over her career and what did she have to say about him? He actually had a really good relationship. Like, okay. I think. I think it was one of the more positive relationships of his life, to be honest with you. <laughs> so, you know, they had a mutual like admiration for each other. And I think because she, she never sucked up to him. And so I think he he did appreciate that, that she was like just so kind of no nonsense with him. But I think she also genuinely cared about him. And so I think he he really appreciated that. So no, he had a huge amount huge, huge, huge amount of control over her career. I think a lot of the time she was okay with it. But again, you know, she she was under contract. You know, she she re-upped her contract a couple of times with him. You know, when he um, controls RKO, like a lot of actors he had under contract, he just shifts over to RKO, not Jane. So Jane was always under contract to the Hughes Tool Company. So never to RKO, always the Hughes Tool Company. And no, she was always incredibly loyal to him. They they would certainly butt heads. And there's a movie she did called The French Line. And she she did put her foot down. There, there's a musical number in that one. And he wanted her to wear kind of a bejeweled bikini. 
and she did um costume tests for it camera tests and said no screw this and she like walked off the film and essentially went on strike until they finally had a compromise there and then um the french line when it came out you know the the, the catholic like legion of decency to you know the archdiocese like in saint louis declared it a mortal sin and and she went to him and she's like okay that that's it i'm done like i, I you know you you are not doing this to me again i'm not going to be in yet another film that has you know all these censorship issues and he said fine just don't tell anybody I agreed to it because I'll deny it. So, wow. you know, and ultimately the last contract she signs with him lasted 20 years and she got a thousand dollars a week and she actually didn't really work for him all that time, but he just really, I think he, he adored her and respected her that much. So yeah, they butted heads, but ultimately, um, no, I think it was a very positive relationship for both of them yeah he dated Catherine Hepburn for a while so clearly he does have an affinity for strong women I think my assumption was just knowing how terrible the studio system is I'm always like oh no things must have been terrible for everyone all the time so it's nice that maybe that's not always the case where there's silver lining in some ways yeah I think with Jane it was it was such a unique situation because she was in a way like operating kind of outside the studio system in a way so I think if she had been signed by one of the major studios like she would have never had you know she didn't make that many movies so I don't even know if you can say her film career is the most stellar of careers um but you know she has like you know a handful of films that are really fantastic gentlemen prefer blondes certainly being the pinnacle but you know I think for the most part people still know who she is and that's because of Howard Hughes I mean that is really because you know Jane yes Jane has a lot of personality but Hughes really, you know, put her over and, and put her out there. Um, so it's just a really unique relationship that the two of them had. And it was a really unique situation she had kind of operating within the studio system, but at the same time, not. There are almost no books about Jane Russell. I think yours might be the only one. What did you learn in your research about her that surprised you? And what was it like researching a person that's not necessarily incredibly well documented in books already? So, yeah, so it is the only book on Jane other than Jane's own memoir. So she did have a memoir in 1985. Um, so even though she's not she she's not well documented in terms of other people writing about her, she is so well documented because there was. <laughs> There's so much, you know, there was just so much publicity and so much written about her over the years. Um, so, it, you know, it's my second book. The, the first book I wrote was about Anne Dvorak, who was an actress in the 30s and 40s. And she's, you know, and talk about writing about somebody who is not documented. I mean, that was like a 15 year odyssey. So with Jane, it it was the opposite. Like there was there's just a lot written about Jane, um, you know, because she was under contract to Howard Hughes. There were materials, lots of primary source materials at archives around town. So there was uh, there was so much. And Jane herself is a really reliable narrator. So not all film stars are. But <laughs> but Jane, again, Jane is so no nonsense and so unimpressed with herself that she I feel like never felt the need to really embellish her story at all. And she didn't try to sugarcoat it. So, you know, she had issues like she had, you know, she had an abortion when she was 19 that went horribly wrong. 
Um, but she talks about it. Like in her book, she's very frank about it. She had, you know, her her first marriage, which was to football player Robert Waterfield. Like it was a very, you know, combative and at times abusive relationship. And she's very um forthcoming about it. So uh it was it was interesting that nobody had written about her because you know she she is very well known. She she died in 2011, so she was around for a, a long time and she got because she had such an intimate um friendship with Howard Hughes and working relationship with him, you know, she got interviewed all the time and she was always very loyal to him. Like she, she never said, you know, a, a bad word about him unless she was complaining about some of the publicity. She always got asked about Marilyn, never said a bad word about Marilyn. So yeah, she was somebody who, who was around. So um, when my publishers suggested I write about her, I was kind of really nobody's written about Jane. And I knew nothing about her other than the outlaw and gentlemen prefer blondes. And so, um, yeah. And just one of the interesting things about Jane is that she was um, a very devout Christian. So that was like a huge part of it. Like if you read her book, you know, there's a lot of Bible verses in her memoir. So that was a big part of it. And it's just interesting how she was able to kind of reconcile her on-screen image with her faith. Yeah, And that was, she was really kind of able to compartmentalize the two. And, you know, one of the big, uh, focuses of of her life later on is that she started a foundation called WAIF that um, advocated for um, kind of reduced laws against international adoption. And, you know, later on advocated for, you know, funding for foster care in this country. So like adoption was a big part of her life. After that abortion, she wasn't able to have children. And so she um, ended up adopting three kids. And one of them she adopted in England. And it was this I won't go into it. We can read the book. It became like this international incident and the FBI opened a file on her and parliament was railing against her. So it was just this horrible experience that kind of fueled what ended up becoming her life's work through this Wave Foundation that she was very actively involved in for, you know, for half a half a century, almost about 40 years. And so um, that was a big part of her life, which was really interesting. And I think in working with Marilyn, she, she referred to like Marilyn as a Wave and kind of saw that, you know, knew that Marilyn had a very unstable upbringing, um, didn't have stability in, in who was taking care of her and where she was living, whereas Jane had the opposite. Um, so Jane had a very loving family. She had four younger brothers. She lost her father when she was, you know, 16, which was unfortunate, but she still had a very loving, supportive family that was always there for her, that I think her younger brothers kept her ego in check. So even once she became a movie star, um, she just never developed that ego or temperament. And I think that's one of the reasons why she had so much confidence in herself was because she had such a secure upbringing and she identified that Marilyn didn't. And I think that's one of the reasons why she was very protective of Marilyn on um, on the set of this film because she 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 could see that you know Marilyn had those insecurities, and because Jane was not an insecure person at all, she wasn't threatened by Marilyn. You can feel that I think in their bond in this film, um, you can feel both of their confidence levels and how it doesn't conflict with the opposite. Like there's no there's no bickering, there's no fighting. This is not the way that the 1950s usually depicts female relationships. Um, usually I feel like it's always women pitted against each other. So it's so refreshing to see a film where they are fully supporting each other and the film is genuinely about their friendship. Um, I wanted to ask if there, you'd mentioned she talked about Marilyn a lot throughout the years and only said kind things. Did she have any specific stories about the film 
filming of this um, with Marilyn, whatever her experience was on this film, I guess, shooting with Marilyn, um, if she had any good stories about that. Yeah, I think one of her big stories that she repeated a lot is that, and as you mentioned, like this is Marilyn's breakout film. So she had, you know, she, she had done Niagara. Her star was certainly on the rise. I think the studio still hadn't figured out what to do with her. So, you know, as great as she is in Niagara, like she really was a comedian. And Howard Hawks had directed Marilyn in um, Monkey Business with um, Ginger Rogers and Cary Grant. So Howard Hawks was well aware of Marilyn's comedic capabilities. But Marilyn, you know, I think later on had a reputation for being like temperamental on the set and not showing up on time. Um, And that did start to um, happen a little bit on the set of this movie, only because she was so nervous so she would show up at the crack of dawn like she would get there so early and have her makeup guy whitey snyder who was her makeup guy you know throughout her career and um and he actually made her up for um when she was buried after she passed away um so she she would get there early and you know jane who loved sleep and who insisted on having nine to 10 hours of sleep every night, she would like roll out of bed and like get to the set like an hour early and her like makeup and hair people, like they just knew exactly what to do. And they, you know, they had her in and out, no problem. Marilyn would be there for hours getting ready. And she was so nervous about going on the set that she would be physically ill. And so Whitey Snyder's, you know, kind of saw like, uh oh, I can, you know, all right, I, I see what's starting to happen. And so he went over to Jane's makeup guy, um, Shotgun Britain, because they all, I guess they all had funky nicknames, but you had Whitey Snyder and Shotgun Britain. <laughs> and Whitey went to Shotgun and said, hey, this is, this is the, the situation. You know, Marilyn's having trouble getting out of her trailer because she's so nervous. I think it might start to become a problem. Maybe you can talk to Jane about it. And Jane's shotgun said, oh, sure. So he went and talked to Jane and said, hey, this is what's going on with Marilyn. And Jane's like, oh, all right. And so Jane, every morning, she would just go knock on Marilyn's trailer and say, hey, Blondel, let's go. And Marilyn would just pop out and go, okay. And they would walk to the set together. So, you know, you, you hear stories sometimes about actresses, you know, not wanting to be the first one on set. Jane just didn't care. Like Jane just knew that this was going to be such a good film. Um, and again, it was just that complete lack of ego. I don't know if there was ever as glamorous a movie star as Jane, who just had like genuinely such a lack of ego that she would just go pull Jane, Marilyn out of her trailer every day. And the two of them would wander on set and and start shooting. And, and Jane was just really patient with her. And, you know, I think Howard Hawks said he sometimes would have trouble communicating with Marilyn. Like he would tell her things and she just wouldn't understand. And Jane would just be like, oh, honey, this is what he's talking about. And so, so, and that was you know really specifically why Howard Hawks wanted Jane there because he felt that Jane could kind of serve that role. Um, you know, if Marilyn's insecurities were starting to get the best of her, I had heard a story once. So George Takiris, fun fact, everybody at home, George Takiris, who plays you know Bernardo in West Side Story, who wins the Oscar for it, he is one of the backup dancers in Diamonds Are a Girl's Best Friend, and he had been asked what Marilyn was like on set, and he said that she you know, would do take after take after take was completely professional. And he didn't see a lot of, you know, the behavior that people had talked about on other sets where, you know, she was showing up late or, you know, at times later in her career, I believe she was showing up unwell. She had a lot that she was going through and a lot of people 
manipulating her and a lot of things going on. But I, I always loved hearing that him talking about what a professional she was and how she wouldn't be like, you know, leaving the set in between takes. She was there with everybody all day long shooting with the people, you know? So I loved hearing that story. That sounds kind of maybe like Jane's influence a little bit too. Oh, I think probably because I think Jane helped make her feel at ease. No, you watch, you watch the Diamonds Are a Girl's Best Friend. Like there are some long takes yes. on that number and Marilyn just nails it. And one of the things I've always, I've always noticed that that first number they do together, um, two girls from Little Rock, yes. like when they, when they walk down the stairs, like Jane looks like Jane, like glances down to make sure she's not going to trip. Marilyn never looks at her feet that entire number. You know, and Jane said, like when they were, you know, and, and the rehearsals were gruel, like they rehearsed for like a solid month before um they started filming. And, you know, and Jane said it was grueling. And Jane, like at the end of the day, she's like, I'm out of here. Like I'm going home to my husband and my kids. And she said Marilyn would would stay. Like Marilyn would just stay and, and just continue working with Jack Cole. Although I think Jane did mention that there I think Marilyn did start to be late to the rehearsals and Jack Cole just said oh Marilyn I know you're not going to do this to me and that was it that that was all he had to say to her and then she she was always on time after that Uh, so I think she you know I think Marilyn had a lot of support on the film um which did kind of keep those tendencies she that really got off the rails later on when when you know she only had like yes people um yeah. yeah, I think worked in her favor on this film. I felt like she was so precise in this. Like there's a sense that I got from Jane where she was kind of like very loose about it. Like, I don't really care. This is fun. I'm having fun. And with Marilyn, it's almost like you could see all the cogs working in a good way, but about her precision and her choices. And I really liked watching that this time because every time she does like just there's there'll be little precise wiggles that you're like, I know that's the exact choreography that you were taught. You are making sure you get every beat in. You are making sure you hit everything. I really appreciate that about her. Um, the attention to detail. Uh, I do want to dive into the idea of like, I mean, Howard Hawks is directing this. He has this whole Hawksian woman trope in a lot of his films. He really likes strong women in his films. Um Something that's really cool about this movie is that the women are in control of their bodies and their ambition, um, and they are rewarded in the end for their ambition. Uh, I know that this play came from Broadway, and it was a hit on Broadway. Carol Channing played the Marilyn Monroe part, which is just, like, crazy to me that, you know, they changed the role this much um, for Marilyn. But... I know the original writers were Joseph Fields and Anita Luce. So a woman was involved in the original writing of this play. Um, So I just think it's really interesting that we have a 1950s movie musical where women are rewarded for ambition or in control of their bodies. There's still gropey men around, but it seems like maybe it's Jane Russell. We talked earlier about how she had no say in her image. um, And you get the sense that her character does have a say in this film, at least. Yeah, absolutely. And, and, you know, I think on the surface, people might kind of like roll their eyes and there's the gold digger, but they know exactly what they're doing. And it's the way they, they act and the way they, they use their bodies is like, they're, they're forced to do that. Like that's the, that's the position they've been put in. So they're just going to do it. You know, that, that, that's the lot they've been dealt, you know, and this is what they have to do to, to have security in their lives because of how society treats them, then yeah, then they are going to be in complete control. Um, I've never seen the, the musical it was based on. It was changed a lot for, for this. So um, they, they did change it to the fifties because Jane and Marilyn were just not flapper types. Um, 
they did have to to beef up the role of Dorothy Shaw considerably because, you know, Fox was paying 175 grand for Jane to use her and she had top billing. Mm-hmm. So if you're going to have Jane top billing, you need to give her more to do. So um, they did they they did beef up that role considerably. Something I noticed in this this viewing was that Jane Russell has the top billing in real life as the actress, but Lorelai Lee has the top billing um, on their fictional poster. And I think that's a direct response to what the Broadway show was, where Lorelai was the main character. Um, but I just noticed that this time and went, oh, ho, ho, I wonder what they're saying with this. Oh, I never noticed that. That's interesting. <laughs> but yeah, the, I know that they considerably cut down the music. Like the only music that they took uh, from the musical... Just Two Little Girls from Little Rock is from the musical uh, Bye Bye Baby, the song where they're saying goodbye to, you know, the people on the boat that have to go ashore and um, Diamonds Are a Girl's Best Friend. So out of a whole musical score with like, I don't know, 20 songs, they kept three. And then um, and those songs were written by Julie Stein and Leo Robin and Julie Stein, people at home, is famous for Gypsy and Funny Girl. Um, So he's, you know, pretty great. Uh, And then there are two other songs, Ain't There Anyone Here for Love and When Love Goes Wrong, that were written by Hoagie Carmichael and Harold Adamson. And Hoagie Carmichael was like the big hit songwriter of the day. Uh, So that's kind of what's going on with the songs. Do you want to like go into some of the musical numbers and what you love about them? Oh, gosh, absolutely. Yeah. Where do we where do we where do we start? I love that throughout they do the theme of like, just two little girls from Little Rock, and then they end on Rock, and then Rock. Oh my gosh, that's a diamond! Great segue into diamonds or a girl's best friend. So like that's how we start the movie, and we do that even before title cards, and then that's how we end the movie because they have rocks on their finger because they're getting married. And I just I love all of that that full circle moment. Um, is there like a favorite musical moment you have in this whole thing? Well, that's dumb because diamonds are a girl's best friend exists in this musical, so that's like iconic. That is very, it is very iconic. I, yeah, I, uh, yeah. <laughs> you know, what can you say about that? That, yeah. But I think, um, ain't there anyone here for love though? I think it's right there. Like you go see this movie in a theater and ain't there anyone here for love gets, I think just as big a response as Diamond Star Girl's best friend. So both these gals get the spotlight just completely shown on them. And they're, they're just, they both get amazing musical numbers. Um, when love goes wrong is just uh. Oh my God. I love it. And ain't there anyone here for love? The sheer gymnastics that is happening in the background. We've got like seven brides for seven brothers level of gymnastics happening. Um, And it's happening all around Jane, as we had mentioned earlier. And they have to hold these poses while she sings full phrases. So like those men holding those uh, headstands that are, they're not even headstands. They're like neck stands on a vault and they have to hold them for so long while Jane is singing. The athleticism is incredible. The attention to detail, the homoeroticism, (laughs) the nude bathing suits, and the attention to the women watching them. I love that we get a clip of like, these are all the women in the background watching this go down. Like, we're turning that on its head. So I love that in that number. Yeah, and that number originally had, like, the the women actually sing in that number. Like, they actually (sighs) join in. It it doesn't make it into the movie, but... um... (sighs) I would have liked that. And Noel Neal, who played Lois Lane on the Superman TV show, she's there. So she's visible in the Bye Bye Baby number. And I, she might be on if Ain't There Anyone Here for Love. She might be there in the background. But yeah, they originally had the girl singing, but then just eventually made it all Jane. Bye Bye Baby's cool, too. 
I, I like that. I mean, you can clearly tell that's one from the musical because it, it functions as a storytelling item within the film. Like it does tell a story there. We have Jane Russell laughing it up, living it up with the group. And then Marilyn taking her guy aside and, you know, reassuring him that everything's going to be okay. There is like a narrative function to that song. And Jane's, um, one of Jane's brothers is, she's he's in that number, her brother, Jamie. Oh, no way. Yeah, he's there. And I think he's in Ain't There Anyone Here for Love as well. He's in both of them. If you were like, he's the muscle man that shows his biceps, I would go, no. No, he's not that one. But but she sings directly during Bye Bye Baby, like when Jane's singing, I think when she's sitting on the suitcase singing, she's singing directly to her brother, which is kind of cute. Yeah. Is there anything else we need to know about those that you know that I like would not be privy to as just a regular layperson? I'll let you know. <laughs> Wait, let's talk about now when love goes wrong, nothing goes right. Oh my God, I love that number. It's like so simple and so gorgeous. And yet it's another, you know, it's them on this on the streets of Paris, well, inside a soundstage. But mm-hmm. again, it's like the, the two of them just, it, it's like a great buddy song, you know? They're both just down on their luck and, but that's okay. They have each other. So they're, they're going to persevere. Yeah. Um, oh, it's such a sweet song. It's so sweet. And they lift each other up throughout the song. Like that's the whole purpose of the song there, you know, like they're blue, they're bummed out. They talk about it. They lift each other up. I do, this was my modern lens weird thing of like, I love that this is the one part of the movie that there are people of color. There are two young, like young boy dancers um, that are black and they're French and they're they're singing and dancing with Jane and Marilyn. And yet there's a little part of you where Marilyn is like sexy dancing with a child. And you're like, oh, I don't know how I feel about that. Could there have been a different choice made there? Did it have to be sexy? Why? That's a child. I don't know. Um, that's my one beef. <laughs> that's just what Marilyn did. <laughs> she couldn't help it. Yeah, I'm sure if Marilyn blew her nose, it was sexy. <laughs> yeah, that's true too. She just is so sexy. She can't help it. She's so sensual all the time. Yeah. But yeah, that number's great. And it's got like this very natural, it sounds like it's happening right there. Like it's it's a very natural number. Um, and it's like speaks to them as show people, I think. Well, I mean, we have to, I mean, for Diamonds are a girl's best friend, we have to, we can't, we can't ignore Jane's rendition of, of Diamonds are a girl's best friend in the courthouse. Yes. Let's break it down. People at home. I'm going to break down the moment and then you can go into this moment. So first of all, we have the first Diamonds are a girl's best friend. Gus Esmond, the man that Marilyn does want to marry because he's rich, shows up at the club to see her perform and she's performing Diamonds are a girl's best friend, which is a number about how like... Yeah, love is great, but diamonds, you can hold on to those forever. Like, no square cut or pear shape. These rocks don't lose their shape because it's about like, I'm going to get old and lose my looks one day. I will have diamonds and that will be something. Those never lose their beauty. It's kind of a self-aware number, but uh, it's this gorgeous technicolor. We have a red background. We have hot pink ball gowns. We have purple costumed ladies hanging from a chandelier and then we have Marilyn in a gorgeous hot pink like all the other women are in these like poofy ball gowns and it's supposed to be like a glamorous ball but Marilyn's in like a sexy pink you know slinky dress and all the men are chasing her and she's you know singing I want diamonds diamonds are girl's best friend no to all of you I want diamonds so that number happens it's awesome it's epic and huge and amazing and then we get Jane Russell doing an impression of Marilyn because she is trying to get Lorelai out of a jam in court. So she appears in court as Lorelai, as Marilyn in a blonde wig. And she does her rendition of Diamonds Are a Girl's Best Friend, which is very sexy also. <laughs> like 
it's a different level of sexy. It's kind of like very broad and brash and you're like, whoa. Um, so that's, that's that moment. Christina, please take us into it. Tell us about it. It's, it's such a delight because yes, it's, it's the same song, but it's a completely <laughs> different take on it. And I just love, you know, when Jane is, you know, she, she's sitting there on, on the court stand testifying and, you know, and she's giving the, the Marilyn breathy voice. And then when she wants to sing, like she, she asked the guy, have you ever heard me sing before? And he says, no. And she goes, well, thank you ever so. And I'm like, is she asking him because, you know, she you know, wants to get permission. I, I always felt like I want to make sure you haven't heard me sing because I don't sing like Lorelai. Yeah. <laughs> so I'm going to do this number and it's not what you expect. And I just love yeah. at the end when, when they, you know, the, the authorities kind of drag her, <laughs> drag her away. And she goes, it's just, yeah. it's just so high energy and it's just hilarious. That's a great way of putting it. It's so high energy. And it happens right after the, like the talk to me, Harry Winston, tell me all about yeah. it. So different than Marilyn's. And it's funny because she's doing a great Marilyn impression throughout. You're pretty impressed by her Marilyn impression. And then when they get to the song, she's like, I'm not fully yeah. Marilyn. I'm still Jane. Listen to me go. Yeah. Like that. Yeah. It yeah. just goes out the window. She goes, oh, no, I have to be me. I have to be me when I sing. Jane loved, loved, loved to sing. And actually, she she had a um a fairly prolific um, recording career. So she recorded like quite a few albums. She toured doing like live shows. She performed on the radio. So, you know, even after she stopped making movies, she toured for years singing. Like Jane loved to sing. So I think that certainly comes across during that, during all, all of her numbers, but that, that one, she just goes to town on it. It is so delightful. Okay. So there's a high note that she sings in When Love Goes Wrong. And I'd read... Somewhere that Marnie Nixon, the famous voice dubber, had dubbed Marilyn's high notes and Diamonds Are a Girl's Best Friend, but it said nothing about Jane's high notes. Did Jane really sing those those high notes in that song? Do you know? I haven't heard she didn't. She doesn't, I mean, she doesn't hit high notes like that on any of her recordings, but I yeah. never heard anything about it. Well, it didn't sound operatic. That high note isn't like super necessary. Yeah. <laughs> so it didn't have to be that high note at that point. So yeah. Jane might have done it. I, I wouldn't. I, I'd buy it. I'd buy it that it was her. I mean, that's what I love about that song in particular, When Love Goes Wrong, because it does feel really spontaneous. And actually, this is just a funny story on my end. I was watching a rental of this and my rental sound was weird. Um, I ended up buying a second rental to get like the correct sound. But for some reason, it only played at acapella without the underscore. <laughs> when I was listening to it. So I had like extra access to their voices and to all of the choices about like the background sounds that they were making. So I couldn't hear the drums, but I could hear the cab horn honking on like one of the downbeat notes. And I could hear, they made the traffic sound like the music towards the end. And I would have never heard that if I had not gotten this wonky recording. <laughs> so it actually ended up being a blessing because I was focusing more on their voices and what they sounded like. Um, and so that high note really stuck out to me because I was like, oh, that sounds really good and really natural. And I don't know that was that that was dubbed. Cool. Are there any uh, favorite quotes that you have in this film? What are your favorite quotes or favorite moments? There are so many. Okay. So I went on a cruise like 15 years ago and um, I deliberately made sure I had a room with a round window. <laughs> so oh. when I walked in, I was with a good friend of mine and just we walked in the room. So I could go, oh, look, round windows. Yeah, I, I feel like I, I quote this film all the time. It is it is so much fun. Did you also get on the bed and see if it was bouncy? That's my second question. Just like Marilyn did. 
when she's someone's trying to have a serious conversation with her and she's bouncing like it's the most joyful thing. Yeah. Oh yeah. We we bounced on the bed of our in front of our red window. Absolutely. One of my quotes was the little boys quote. They actually, you know what? There were too many quotes. There were so many good There's quotes in this many. film. The yeah. quote that Lorelai has towards the end, she has like three amazing quotes in a row. The one where she's like, well, I'm not marrying him for his money. I'm marrying him for your money. Like, yeah, And she just delivers that. She yes. delivers it perfectly. Her comedic timing is perfect. Yeah. There's just funny thing. Like one of the athletes goes to Maryland, like, oh, you're one of the athletes, aren't you? And he goes, I am the only four letter guy. I would think you'd be ashamed of that. Just like little yes. things like that that you might not catch. Um, oh God, one of my favorites. And when I go, when, when I, cause I've seen this movie, I don't know how many times at a theater and there's, um, there's the scene where, you know, Jane's like, okay, honey, you need to, you need to, you know, get, get out the window to get away from the cops. And and then Gus knocks on the door and he's like, Gus, like, okay, maybe he could help. And she goes, well, he can't boost me any higher than you can. It's like, sometimes the audience gets it. Sometimes they don't. But I just think it's hilarious because she's so she's so adorable. That I just uh, love it. But then she's so smart where it matters. Like she has all of these lines that are very like Golden Girls, like Rose and Golden Girls-esque, where she's like the innocent, naive person. And you're like, okay. So she's great at that. But then she's smart where it counts, as she says later on. I'm smart when I need to be. She's very smart about certain things. I think there, we've talked about this on the show before, where there are men that are like, women aren't funny. And I'm like, the women in this are hilarious. Marilyn is perfect at physical comedy in this. She's so brilliant. And Jane Russell is so spot on with her, with her delivery of all of her like very sassy digs. They're just right every time. Every time. Oh, and when Lady, yeah, when Lady Beekman, yeah, I mean business. And why are you wearing that hat? (laughs) Just like, and we're going to be married. And she's like, to each other. And then, of (laughs) course, the famous end line. Remember, on your wedding day, it's all right to say yes. It's good to say yes. Oh, God. (laughs) Oh, and I stand by that. I think their wedding dresses are terrible. That 1950s white turtleneck lace with the 50s silhouette is one of my least favorite looks. It's very like sisters and white Christmas. I do not care for it. I'm like, why did they do that to them? Because they had to match and there were no other flattering styles that they could both match in. I don't hate the dresses as much as you do, but it is interesting because the rest of the costumes are amazing. Yes. Like the like I want Jane's wardrobe in that film. <laughs> like it's, yeah. So William Trevia did the costumes. But interestingly, um, so he did a first pass at the costumes. You know, and Jane, that that silhouette that she's wearing for the wedding gown, I think that was a lot of what he gave her. And it doesn't it doesn't suit her yeah. at all. And so the first pass of the costumes, I think she Jane looked terrible. And they did they did do screen tests. And they did screen tests of the two of them together. And I think Daryl Zanuck saw it and said, oh, my God, don't ever show Jane this test. And like Jack Cole was like, she looks like an ice man in drag, like a really attractive ice man in drag, but an ice man. And even Jane's like, oh, no, you, you can't dress me. And so she sat down with with William Trivia and said, hey, you know, I, I've already worked this out with my costume guy over at RKO. This is what works on me. This is what doesn't. And her costumes in the film, both of them, both her and Marilyn's costume, and they're very different. So they are, you know, they have they, they clearly have their own styles. Um. So yeah, I don't know why it kind of, you know, it falls apart with the wedding. 
<laughs> well, I think know? it's because they get scared when they have to match them. Because this happens in White Christmas too. I think whenever they're like, oh no, we have to dress two different body types. Just put them in this one thing. Because they do it in the beginning too with those red sequin dresses. It looks a lot more flattering on Marilyn than on Jane, that silhouette. Because it's again, the yeah. high neck, long sleeve. Um, but they figure it out. Like you're right. The rest of their costumes, when, when Jane is wearing that black, like one, is it a one piece? It's like when she's doing the dance. It looks like a bodysuit or, or it might be just like a halter with pants. The scene after that, when they're, um, when they first meet Piggy and she has that brown cocktail dress. Oh man. I, I just so desperately want that. Yeah. Her costumes are great. I loved Marilyn's. Every look Marilyn yeah. had was gorgeous. And that gold dress, we never get to see the full outfit of. We only get to see the back. And I'm like, no, what's the front look like? It's so pretty. Yeah. And what's crazy is that gold made dress. So Jane does a movie a couple years later, the revolt of Mamie Stover. And there's like, um, an extra who wears that dress, that gold made dress. Marilyn Monroe's gold made dress. They give it to an extra. Yeah. Or it's like a minor, like a bit player, but it's yeah, yeah there, there's a scene. And then there's another movie that Jane did, Fate is the Hunter. And there's like an extra wearing Marilyn's bus stop outfit. So they just recycled that stuff. They were not forward thinking in terms of archival. <laughs> no, they were very economical. I mean, I think eventually the gold lame, I think both of those costumes, I think probably Debbie Reynolds probably got him at some point. Um, but Diamonds Are a Girl's Best Friend, that originally, the original costume for that was like this just, one piece like net leotard with strategically placed diamonds no and like a tail with like a horsefly clip uh and you can go online and google it and there, there are you know maryland did costume tests with it and zanuck saw it and went through the roof like you've got to be kidding me because you know the production code administration warned them said you you know make sure you're covering these girls up you know, or we're not going to give you a seal of approval. And so, yeah, they did this costume on me. And it would have come off as a very different number if Marilyn was wearing something like that. Trivia ended up working with Jane because Jane did a couple more movies at Fox. And so in Gentlemen Mary Brunettes, which is not a sequel to Gentlemen Prefer Blondes, even though Anita Luce had written a sequel called Gentlemen Mary Brunettes, there's a film that Jane Russell is in that has nothing to do with this one. And I don't recommend it, but they do actually wear modify her and Jeannie Crane wear modified versions of that original design for Diamonds Are a Girl's Best Friend. So Trivia recycled it and, and put them in it. That costume is so elegant. And what's so cool about it, I think, especially when they're when we're watching that number, is the number starts off like a big dancing piece. So people at home, this is what it starts off as. We have men um, in tuxedos doing like balletic moves with women in ball gowns as though they are waltzing on a dance floor, but they're like lifting them and twirling them. And Marilyn is there the whole time. She's wearing the same color the rest of the women are wearing, but she, I mentioned earlier, it's like a more sleek, a more elegant look, but she's on stage like that whole time sitting there. And because of that gown and the way that it blends with everybody, she can both fit in. And then when it's her time to shine, she stands out. It's so, it's so different. It's so unique. It's so gorgeous. But I do love that, that, that Marilyn is hiding in plain sight for like the whole opening of that number. And we just, mm -hmm. we just don't notice it until it's time until she's ready to shine. Yeah. I think had she worn that other costume, I, I think that costume is such a big reason why that number is so iconic mm -hmm. because it just is such an elegant, um, such an elegant gown for her. It's like elegant and sexy. It's like both of yeah. the things and sensual. Yeah. It's very like the silk and pink. It's so pink. And pink. Yeah. But it drives me nuts that her hair gets messed up in that number. And I always want to fix it for her. 
Uh, what? I, I can't believe, I guess that was the best take. Cause I always am just amazed that they would let her have a big chunk of her hair out of place for that long. Right? It's like a solid, like 30 seconds. And then she hops out of frame and we're in the next frame and it's fine. But yeah, it does. It kills you a little inside. You're like, was there no yeah. one that was on her hair yeah. at that moment? Oh God. Let's see. I did mark down two quotes. Uh, one, there's a little boy in this. There's a joke that like Marilyn's looking for a good mate for Jane Russell because Jane Russell can't find her own good guys because she's always like dating the the poor guys who leave her. And Marilyn's like, well, you know, marry someone rich. So she finds Howard Spofford III, who turns out to be a child. Um, but he has some great moments in the film, this child actor. Um, and one of them, he helps Marilyn out of a pickle. And what he says to her, he's like worried he's going to go to jail if she's stealing and he helps her. But he ends up deciding, I'll help you for two reasons. I tried to do his voice. That's bad. I'm going to stop. I'll help you for two reasons. <laughs> the first reason is that I'm too young to be sent to jail. The second reason is you've got a lot of animal magnetism. A lot of animal uh, magnetism. And you know it's cloying. You know they're, they're like, ha, 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 isn't this funny? But it is. It is. They get you. That's totally funny. Um, and then when the gross man is hitting on her... He grabs the little boy's hand who's helping out Marilyn because he's hiding under like a coat and Marilyn's head is on top and the little boy's underneath this blanket thing to make it look like he's part of Marilyn. And the old man's groping the little boy's hand and he goes, stop that. <laughs> it's it's really funny. It's really cute. The guy's like, did your voice change? And she's like, laryngitis. I'd be like, no, it's that little froggy voiced boy. And I love it. Yeah. And then when she goes to the room when they're going to try to get the film from the detective and and the heat's turned on, you know, and he goes, oh, it's off of here. And Marilyn goes, oh, I've had a touch of laryngitis lately. Just tag it back. Perfect. Oh, and I love that she shows Jane in that scene how smart she is, too, because Jane's like, why is it so hot in here? We should turn it down. And Marilyn's like, he'll take off his jacket if it's hot. Hey, look, look how smart I am. That's for him. Yeah. Um, the other quote I wrote down is a famous quote from this film, which is a Marilyn Monroe quote. And when she's talking to Gus's father to convince him to let her be part of the family, mm -hmm. she says, don't you know that a man being rich, you want to finish it? A man being rich is like a girl being pretty. You might not marry a girl just because she's pretty, but my goodness, doesn't it help? You have such a good impression. I don't have a Marilyn impression, so I can't, I can't do that. But that was really good. Yeah, that's Thank the you. quote. <sighs> so yeah, those, those are my quotes that I noted. Um, I mean, the only other details I wanted to share before we head out is um, one of the things that drives me nuts in the film is uh, when she, Marilyn becomes so obsessed with having this tiara. And I'm like, girl, you're going to marry Gus and Gus can buy you a tiara. Why this tiara? Let it go. I always I always feel that, you know, would she really not know what a tiara was? I mean, it's cute. Oof. It is totally it's cute. cute. It's a cute scene. And I just love finding new places to wear diamonds. Like, it's great. But really, I don't know what a tiara is. I don't know that I buy that. I completely agree. Um, another just like little fun detail that I like in this uh, is during When Love Goes Wrong, Nothing Goes Right. There's a chorus singing behind them and they're singing in English with a French accent because they're in Paris. So I love that they made the effort. That's so cute. And that's that's about it. I mean, we mentioned Marnie Nixon and we mentioned George Chikiris. They're both kind of in this movie. So that's our fun West Side Story connection. Oh, and also I think, you know, we talked about Jack Cole, but we also have to give credit to Glenn Bearden. Mm. She was the assistant choreographer and she worked with the two of them a lot. So those those dance moves are are accomplished in large part because of Gwen Bearden. She is a Broadway legend for all the people at home. Go go look her up if you don't know who she is. And yeah. yes, thank you for saying that. All right. So we're now in the modern lens portion of this show. Um, what what didn't hold up? What concepts, what things in here didn't hold up and what did hold up? Well, 
I mean, you certainly, I don't think, would make a movie where men talk about the women the way they do. But again, it it is a reflection of of the time, you know, and, and a friend of mine recently showed it to his daughters who are like in their late teens, and they just hated it and thought it was an appalling portrayal of women. And it's like, it's 1953. And, and again, like we've talked about, like, yes, Lorelai is a gold digger, but like, is she really going to go get her law degree? Like, I guess she could, but you know, this is a more effective path for her. So, um, if you watch these movies through today's lens, you're, you're, you are going to be disappointed. Um, but ultimately, I mean, these are women who are in control. Like they know what they're doing. And I think they are doing it because that's the position society has put them in. Um, yeah. So I think at the end of the day, I do think it is a positive portrayal of women. And it's certainly a positive portrayal of, of female friendship, which you don't always see. I would totally agree so. with that. Because I think you're you're totally right. The only way to succeed as a woman in the past is essentially through marriage. That was your way up to be successful. That yeah. was like, basically it was like your job that you could get. It could be possible if you just really wanted to like risk completely just getting trampled on. Because there were women that, that did go into these fields that traditionally weren't male, but it was not an easy path. It, it really wasn't. I don't fault them. I don't fault them for that. And then there is just like smaller things, uh, like oh even the expectation of harassment is something that always bothers me in movies from the past where it's like expected that men will basically grope you and do harmful things to you but if you're a gorgeous woman or even if you're just a woman forget like looking like Marilyn and Jane if you're just a woman you're supposed to be able to like accept that harassment is a part of your life so that's always that's always a, ch- a challenge in watching films from the past and especially this film that's a hundred percent true that was true you know for my mom, like in the seventies, I feel like that was even true for like me and my friends, like in the nineties, like it and in the two thousands. Wow, so every generation in the two thousands and in the two twenty twenty, you know. Yeah, and then um, there was the line about Tennessee that I. I- Marilyn has a line about like, well, if Howard Spafford was sixteen or seventeen, you could marry him in Tennessee, and it's creepy. But I also love that like men totally would have said that back then and it would have been fine. And so I kind of love that a woman is saying it in this context. Like, is it gross and creepy to be wanting a minor? Yes. But I I like that they turned it on its head at least. Lorelai's joking. Lorelai knows when she's being funny. I think she's fully aware. <laughs> she's fully aware. Some things that do hold up on a positive note are the people of color in the one scene. So there's no people of color in general, which is rough. And there's no diversity in any sort of filmmaking in this process at all. But we do get positive representation of two people of color, which is more than you can say of a lot of films at this time. Yeah. Um, and then we get a great homoerotic dance number for the future. Like, we I do. Uh, yeah, I would show this at Pride. Like, I think it's great. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. It's a hoot. God, that number just takes down the house when you go see it at a, at a theater. It really does. So we are now in the double feature portion of this podcast. If you liked this film um, and you want to see something like it, uh, to pair it with as a double feature. My highest recommendation for you would be How to Marry a Millionaire. Um, very similar kind of plot premise. Uh, three women renting an apartment to attract millionaires um, and fall in love with them. And Marilyn plays a very funny character um, who's similar to this character. Um, I would also say The Lady Eve would be a great pairing. That's like a a con artist uh, woman uh, meets a man on a boat. <laughs> We've got a lot of meets a man on the boat. Uh, romance on the high seas i wrote down um it's always fair weather has a great uh dancing scene with sid Charisse where she's dancing with boxers that very much reminded me of jane russell's number in this film so i'd say check that out um 
It's Valentine's Day, so an affair to remember is always great. Plus, it's another shipboard romance in the 50s with gorgeous Technicolor. Oh, and Crazy Ex-Girlfriend has a very great tribute number uh, to Diamonds Are a Girl's Best Friend called The Math of a Love Triangle. That's truly hilarious. Um, do you have any uh, double features that you'd like to share? I don't know that it's a great movie, but the French line was Howard Hughes's version of of gentlemen prefer blondes oh well we can make a movie with jane on a boat that's a musical in technicolor so it's it's not the greatest movie it certainly has its virtues and if you can get the um the uncensored version of it jane does have this number looking for trouble which again is it's quite a saucy number and is absolutely a hoot so i would recommend that i don't know i think if, if i you know i watched Marilyn and technicolor i want more Marilyn and technicolor so i think you can watch like the seven-year itch man you could even watch river of no return um prince and the showgirl <laughs> I love <laughs> the Prince and the Showgirl. I think you can even throw on Niagara. I just, I, I, you just can't get enough of of her. There's no business like show business. No, not that one though. <laughs> <laughs> but there is, there is a Jane movie, and just from a purely, if you want to see these gals like in glorious Technicolor, um, there is a movie called um, Foxfire that Jane did. That is in. It, it was actually the last movie made in three strip technicolor um but it's just a great list just it is just jane like technicolor her costumes are stunning in it it's it's not a musical it's not a comedy but it's just jane just overpowering the screen and so and that and that was one of my big surprises when writing the book and and you know learning about jane um her filmography um foxfire was that was the surprise for me. It's been such a delight to learn about her. I, is there anything before we go that you want to share about Jane that we haven't talked about that you think is important for us to know? Even though Jane certainly had her ups and downs, um, I just think she's so fascinating because she she wasn't, she, she's not tragic in a way. Like she's, and she was just wasn't temperamental and just that lack of ego I find so refreshing and that she valued her the female friendships in her life. And she had friends from high school that she remained friends with until the end of her life and like her stand in she was friends with till the end of her life. So, um, yeah, I think we can all kind of, you know, take a lesson from Jane and just have that self-confidence and value those around us rather than being threatened by them. And so that's something that, you know, because when you do it, you get a great movie like gentlemen prefer blondes it sounds like she could see the bigger picture she was working for the bigger picture jane was absolutely working for the bigger picture absolutely and not yeah not necessarily working for herself oh the one other thing i love about jane she had this incredible mid-century modern house up in the hills in sherman oaks that was designed by kemper nomlin jr and unfortunately it's not there anymore it, it was torn down i guess due to damage from the 1994 northridge quake but if you look up photos of jane in her mid-century modern house oh my god it is it is just fabulous just amazing i love it i love los angeles <laughs> real estate so um so christina thank you so much for being on the show how can people find your work and how can they find you yeah you can find me um so my author website is christina rice writes.com you can also find me at jane russell biography.com and andavorak.com or on twitter less and less but still on twitter um at christina rice and don't forget everybody at home the book that christina wrote about uh jane russell is called mean moody magnificent jane russell and the marketing of a hollywood legend so go check it out 
Christina, thank you so much for being on the show. It was such an honor to have you. This was such a great conversation. Yeah, thank you so much. That was fun. All right. Well, we'll see you next time on Talk Classic to Me. You have been listening to Talk Classic to Me with Sarah Greenfield. That's me. My guest this week was Christina Rice. They will be featured on our Instagram page. If you enjoyed our show, please introduce a friend and show them how to subscribe and maybe even find us on anchor.fm to become a contributing member. And don't forget to follow us on Instagram at Talk Classic to Me for some awesome content and to find out what's coming up next. Thanks for listening. <laughs>